Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the October 2019 issue of NCP is Nutrition and Burn Injury. So joining me today is Dr. Keith Miller, the corresponding author of the paper, Energy Expenditure and Protein Requirements Following Burn Injury, which is published in the October 2019 issue of NCP. Dr. Keith Miller is an Associate Professor of Surgery and Associate Trauma Medical Director in the Division of General Surgery at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. So thank you, Dr. Miller, for joining me today. Thank you. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Miller if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, so thanks, Dr. Hasse, uh, for inviting me to do this. I think uh, basically as far as disclosures, I am a faculty member on the Nestle uh, Nutrition Fellowship. I don't know that it has any direct conflict here. We're not talking about any uh, products along those lines. And my second disclosure would be that uh, regardless of which topic we're talking about today, I think there are those out there that probably know more about it than me, but I'll do the best I can as far as this goes. So. Thanks. I think we can all learn a lot, not only from the discussion, but also the paper. So in your paper, you talk about patients with burn injury and how they have a hypermetabolic response. So can you kind of briefly highlight some of those major components of those metabolic changes and the proposed mechanisms that are behind that hypermetabolic response? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the hypermetabolic response uh, after severe burn injury is both unique and profound. And I think it's something that's really drawn me to the care of these patients. I think it's a local, regional, and systemic phenomenon. I think locally you've got uh, mediators such as the histamines and serotonin, prostaglandins, and uh, leukotrienes, and interleukins, and all those things that we've read about with the goal being to increase vascular permeability to those areas and, and sort of increase flow to those areas in order to facilitate the healing process tumor necrosis factor, complement activation, all these things happen as well. And you get a tremendous amount of fluid flux locally as a result of oncotic pressure differences. And I think that's what happens at the local level. And then you see that sort of on the systemic level or the whole body uh, level, if you're talking about more severe burns, greater than 20% burns or, or uh, full thickness burns along those lines does seem that the hypermetabolic response is related to the burn size and depth. I think from a systemic perspective, you know, these inflammatory cascades that sort of begin at the local level can result in organ-specific hypoperfusion or central hypoperfusion and sort of impact organ function over the long term. The ideologies behind this, glucocorticoids and uh, catecholamines, I think are all sort of something that we're well-versed in with regard to the hypermetabolic response, but certainly this happens uh, relatively early and then can persist for a very long period of time after burn injury, which makes it unique. You alluded to this a minute ago, so um, it seems like there should be a correlation between resting energy expenditure and burn area, but are there other factors like the location of the burn or the degree of the burn that also affects the resting energy expenditure? Yeah, so I think I would answer that by saying there's certainly a correlation between the size of the burn and the metabolic response to the burn itself uh, in populations. I think there's individual variability. So, you know, kind of as you 
gloss over the paper. I think that's why indirect calorimetry and sort of targeting individuals becomes important because although there is this association with increased resting energy expenditure dependent on the size of the burn, it may not be sort of a one-to-one phenomenon in the individual. So I think that's an old concept, uh, you know, Dr. Matsuda in the Journal of Trauma in 1987 kind of talked about the less than 10% burns having 25% increase, 10 to 30% having a 35% increase, 30 to 60% sort of having that 60% increase in resting energy expense. So the numbers aren't as important as the concept that, yes, it does appear that the size of the burn, clearly the depth of the burn, other issues, I think uh, gender certainly has been associated with changes or alterations in metabolic response, uh, sepsis or active infections on top of a pre-existing burn. Interestingly, um, Dr. Hernan and his group kind of demonstrated that maybe inhalational injury does not seem to increase arresting energy expenditure, which uh, may be counterintuitive for those of us that take care of that particular entity. So yeah, I think there's a lot of factors overall that contribute to the metabolic alteration that occurs after these injuries. So we talked a little bit about measuring REE and that accounts certainly for a big part of the picture, but are there additional losses or absorption issues that are common in these patients with burn injury that kind of confound estimating and providing adequate calories and, and even protein? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I think uh, burns are the classic example of sort of uh, losses that can't readily be accounted for, you know, whether you're talking about the burn wound, uh, escherotomies, I mean, you'll have rare, uh, hopefully rare decompressive laparotomies and mechanical ventilation. These are the places where it's kind of hard to account clinically for the losses that you're seeing. Matching provision with losses uh, is very difficult. Uh, in these patients. And sometimes just provision in and of itself can be difficult. Tolerance, I think, is uh, generally pretty good in these patient populations. Anecdotally, I would say, you know, that if you're able to provide enteral substrate at a trophic level early, that uh, it can improve your long-term tolerance, kind of like what we see in severe acute pancreatitis, that if you jump on this issue early, it allows you to uh, improve your overall provision. But, uh, you know, tolerance remains an issue. I think Serial reassessment is a key component, and uh, unfortunately, as far as reassessment goes, it's predominantly clinical in nature, you know, up at the bedside, uh, looking for abdominal distension, looking for hemodynamic abnormalities rather than the traditional gastric residual volumes. But yeah, I think uh, certainly unaccounted for losses and trying to match provision with the overall losses could be very difficult in the setting of burn injury. So we've talked a little bit about measuring the calories. Are there some practical ways or more accurate ways you can share with our listeners on estimating protein needs in patients with burn injury? Yeah, so uh, practical ways. So this is, you know, we stand on the on the shoulders of giants. A lot of people have done a lot of this work uh, in the past and sort of uh, intensive work, uh, you know, following urinary urea excretion over periods of time and kind of establish some of this. Certainly that's a tool that can be applied clinically. I think some sophisticated ICUs still do that. You asked for practical ways. We haven't found that to be real practical. One of the more recent ICU trials uh, uh, certainly assessed 24-hour urinary urea excretion on a daily basis, tried to convert this to a metabolic protein consumption factor, but uh, this is difficult. So the most, to answer your question, I guess, shortly, yes, there is a practical way. They're all weight-based equations. I think, you know, whether you look at uh, uh, 
America's Society of Parental and Nutrition or uh, SCCM or, you know, I think 1.5 to 2 grams is kind of the sweet spot there. We certainly try to push 2 grams per kilogram per day of actual body weight uh, in our patients. And that's really what we use at the bedside. Unfortunately, you know, serum protein markers are not reliable or helpful in answering this question, maybe from a morbidity and uh, mortality perspective, but uh, really we use that weight-based equation as a practical way to determine protein provision in these patients. Dr. Miller, you talked about this kind of novel concept of browning adipose tissues in your paper. So can you give us kind of an overview or a highlight or explain to listeners what this is and why we should, as nutrition support practitioners should be concerned with that? Yeah, so, you know, the, the concept's not mine, obviously, and uh, there's, again, those that have done a tremendous amount of work on this, including Dr. Herndon and his pediatric burn patients, where they sort of observe this phenomenon of browning. For me, as a, as a critical care doctor, I think browning is just one example of some of the futile energy cycling that happens in critical illness, whether you're talking about burn insult or traumatic injury or, or sepsis, and futile energy cycling has become you know, an issue that we sure has always been an issue we struggle with, meaning that we think of skeletal muscle as a place where, uh, you know, uh, succumbs to a relentless assault from critical illness, but there's also changes in adipose tissue. And so brown fat in general is, uh, produces heat by a non-shivering thermogenesis versus, you know, skeletal muscle, which would be the shivering component. Um, I think it does this by uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, and so energy is sort of continuously used to make heat. I think if you look at brown fat versus white fat, again, I'm a trauma surgeon, so, you know, I got to have sort of simple concepts to understand this stuff. But, uh, you know, brown fat contains multiple fat droplets rather than a single large fat droplet. And brown fat has many more mitochondria than traditional or the white fat or uh, ad- white adipose. And so browning uh, refers to that situation where you convert to brown fat as a result of uh, insult or injury. And the etiology seems to be catecholamine related, maybe interleukins, maybe parathyroid hormone related proteins. These seem to be the triggers over long periods of time and maybe in the setting of prolonged exposure, which result in browning of the fat. I think the last part of your question, so why is this important? So basically energy is sort of cycled futilely from an ATP production perspective. So clinically, uh, you know, this may be one of sort of the concepts underlying anabolic resistance and some like that term and some don't. But I think the point is that we've got this subset of patients that we really feel like we're trying to do a good job with nutrition support with regard to caloric and protein provision, but it just doesn't seem that they're using the energy or the calories or the protein that's being provided. And I think this is just one example of uh, some of the mechanisms we're dealing with in trying to do this. Thank you for that. I think before we close, Dr. Miller, are there any other comments that you'd like to share with our listeners today? No, thank you very much for uh, having me here. I think uh, it's an honor to be invited to, to have this discussion. I think all I'll say is that it's an exciting time in nutrition support. The multidisciplinary nature of our field uh, allows for intriguing and uh, thought-provoking questions to be addressed. I think now, given the large randomized control trials that are starting to pop up in practice, uh, again, there's not been a better time to be involved in nutrition support. So I'm certainly honored to be a part of this podcast, and thank you so much.
Well, thank you, Dr. Miller, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I invite all of our listeners and our readers to find out more about nutrition and burn injury in our October 2019 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. 